and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Katie Barfield, it is so fabulous to have you on She's the Boss Chats. Thank you so much for agreeing to an interview. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm really excited to hear your story uh, because we don't know each other at all and I've read about you and you sound absolutely incredible. So can you tell everybody what it is that you do right now, just what your business is? I am a food waste prevention fanatic, for want of a better description. So That's a great um, description. <laughs> I am passionate about preventing good food from going to waste, and I've done that in various different guises throughout my career, but right now it's the culmination of all of the learnings over the past 15 years, and I run Yumi, which is a technical-based solution for B2B, of food waste. So basically large companies that have lots of food that might be out of spec, imperfect packaging, cancelled orders in this environment, exports that just didn't happen that were meant to happen, shift of demand, and they've got all this surplus food. They don't have an avenue to market. They can put it up onto the Yumi platform in real time, and then it can be seen by over 3,000 business buyers who can put in a bid and buy that food. And the whole idea is to stop perfectly good food from going to waste. Oh, my goodness. What such a clever idea. And there's just all sorts of people been dabbling around the end, and it sounds like you've brought it all together. So can you tell me why did you set it up? I set it up. You kind kind of have, but I I want to hear more about the horror of all this waste. Look, to be honest, I was going about my business like, most of the most of the population kind of a bit oblivious to the amount of food that was going to waste, you know, apart from being told as a child, eat all that food, there's people starving, you know, as my mother would do. Yeah, and starving children up, yeah. in Africa. Yeah, <laughs> eat up your revolting soggy Brussels sprouts. Mum wasn't a good Brussels sprout food, I have to say. <laughs> you know, so apart from that, I was I was blissfully unaware. I was So what industry were you in though? Life. I mean were you, were you anything to do with food? My, no, I wasn't not at the beginning. No. My oh, career started wow. out. It wasn't anything to do with food. Interesting though, my father was. So my father actually had a kind of the Yumi one point because oh. but, but the kind of the manual version because of course tech didn't exist back in the in the seventies and he would he would get food that was sort of seconds and then take it in and distribute it to sort of hotels and commercial kitchens, which essentially is what Yumi does just via tech. But I didn't really put two and two together. So whether that influenced me, didn't influence me, I grew up around food. My parents were food fanatics as far as they were always entertaining. There was always a dinner party going on in my house. There was always way too much noise, way too much wine. And I, <laughs> I remember the sound of your parents. <laughs> oh, and I'd sit on the stairs at the old bell, which is where I grew up, which is this 16th century house in England and I would listen to all of this sort of gaggle going on and the voices getting louder and lots of laughter. So that's kind of how I grew up. Um, So that's probably the only dalliance with food in my early years, as it would have been for many people, I'm sure. Um, And then I just got into um, my, actually my education was in acting, believe it or not. So I Oh my God, I can't wait to hear this story about the acting. But but was there some sort of moment and and we'll get into the the whole background of it but was there something that happened like I call it a light bulb moment but something that happened that just tipped you over and went you went 
I've got to do something about this. Like I can see there's this glaringly obvious gap. Yeah, look, it was more a pilot light moment than a <laughs> fire that, yeah. erupt, you know, that went up, an inferno. Yeah. But I had a little bar in the city of Melbourne. So this is sort of right. I'm fast forwarding a lot of years now. I'd moved here, little bar in Little Burke Street called the Bug Bar, and the chef was in there and I remember him scraping the food um, into the bins and I remember him taking food out of the fridge that hadn't been used, hadn't been on oh a plate God. and putting it in the bin because it was really hard to, you know, you order stuff for a menu and it's a hot day and everyone wants salmon and no one wants the beef or no one wants the pie because right. or whatever it would be. And so he'd say, well, you know, we wouldn't serve food at the weekend. So he'd be like, well, that won't make it through to Monday in the bin it goes. So I remember oh being struck God. at that moment that there was so much food going to waste in our little bar and it was a tiny little little kind of like jazz bar that only housed yeah. about 50 people um yeah. and I thought god there's like 40,000 at the time I think there were restaurants and cafes imagine that's happening on scale that is a lot of food that's a bit shocking so that was the first yeah, it is shocking pilot light moment I suppose and that would have been <laughs> gosh 20 18 18 years ago and then um I met up with a sold bar and we had a little juice bar and I met up with um, a man called Ian Carson and Simone Carson and they were just going down to the local market, Paran Market in Melbourne and picking up fresh food at the end of trading and taking it down to Sacred Heart Mission. So nothing particularly coordinated or, or, or fancy, just a couple of people wanting to do the right thing, understanding how privileged they were because they are and wanting yeah. to make a difference in someone else's life. So I met up with them and they said, I think we're on to something. We've got this thing called second bite we've named it but you know we haven't got any money and we haven't got any any staff <laughs> but you know yeah. and I was like sounds good let's give it a go for six months I'll kind of bring it together and see what happens and uh, I was still there on the board nine years later and we've created second bite so that's sort of where the passion really the pilot light moment and then how you know serendipity plays a part it just happened to be meeting them pilot light moment they had an opportunity I didn't have anything I was doing at the time and it all came and together. And it all just perfectly it perfect came together. Fit. It was a perfect fit, yeah. Well, it just it honestly kind of sounds like the most fantastic solution to a problem that everyone talks about. So let me take you right the way back now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, in fact, you can take me all the, way, right, okay. all the way back. Can you talk to me about how your career has evolved, say, since you left high school? Because I bet – when you finished high school, you didn't say, when I grow up, I want to run Yumi Foods. <laughs> no, no, I so have no So how did it all happen? How did it all happen? Well, it happened, gosh, how did it? I left high school and yeah. I. In England. Yep. And I went to, I just kind of, you do your A-levels, you go to sixth form there. So I went on to do my yeah. A-levels. Um, and then I decided, oh, my phone's going, let me turn that off, sorry. Um, That's And right. uh, I. I thought, I don't really know if I want to go to university. I'm really not sure if I want to go to university, you know, and although my friends were going to university, I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to see things and experience things and I wanted to get out there and and make do something, you know, but I didn't right, want okay. to study for another three years. It just wasn't my kind of my job. I was one of these kids that was reasonably lucky 
but not particularly studious. I just, right. I would be one of those kids that would cram literally a week before an exam go, and then just hope for the best that the questions that came up were the ones that I'd read. Um, but there were, I think I was the same as yeah. you actually. And, and then did you find exams weren't like for me, for some reason I could really cram and get an exam. Okay. Yeah. When they eventually changed the curriculum and went, you'll be judged on all year. I went, shit, I'm so glad I'm not a student right now. Same. Absolutely. <laughs> Exactly the same. Okay, I, I, I okay. reckon I was very lucky. And there were a few subjects though at school that I did really <laughs> enjoy. There were ones I just – there were a couple that I was just good at, like maths yeah. and science, but I didn't try or apply myself very well. And then there were subjects that I really loved, and one of them was English, actually. It was reading. I loved books and yeah. I loved reading. I loved the escapism of it. My parents sort of split up, so that wonderful jovial uh, feast of a picture I painted, that all fell apart when I was about sort of seven, eight. Um, oh, and, right, quite young. Yeah, and I found the escapism into books quite early. It would just sort of take everything away because, of course, then there wasn't this on-demand TV or this computer games that kids escape into today with books. That was all you had, books and comics and things like that. So um, I kind of found that as an escapism, really, I think, and just something to soothe me because it was quite a, it's quite an acrim- it was an acrimonious uh, split. And you were um, very young and very I young. guess also everybody wasn't splitting in those days like they are now. No, and I'm the only child. Right. Um, so it was, oh, it was all, thing. you're kind of on your own. But, you know, it's all you know. You don't think for yeah, me. You just think... This is and look what it's sad. done for you anyway. Yes. Well, it makes you very independent, I think, and self-sufficient and questioning and non-reliant on other people, which has got its pluses and minuses, I'll be honest. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I had, yeah, so I found this love of books and I was really um, immersed myself in it. And then I wanted to do more of that. I kind of came back to it and I found that I really, my cousin was doing quite a lot in the entertainment industry. She's now actually quite famous in the UK. And um, Who is she? Who is she? Her name is Carrie Grant, which is an interesting name. So you won't forget that. But Carrie she's married Grant. to David Grant, C-A-R-R-I-E Grant. She's married to David Grant, who's a singer back in the 80s. He had like a number one hit with Jackie Graham. And they fell in love and she's amazing. She's as a vocal coach. She's on the one show. She's a presenter, blah, wow. blah, blah. And I was living with her in London right? and um, she said, look, you know, maybe you should give acting a go because you, you're very creative and you love the books. And so I was like, oh, why not? So I auditioned for a couple of places and I got into both of them. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll come onto something here. And I'd love drama at school. <laughs> I'd actually done yeah. my A-level early in drama. They sort of pushed me forward. So it was kind of on the cards even at school. And then I went to drama school. I got a master's in, in acting, believe it or not. I came yeah. out and I got a job straight out of drama school, which was wonderful. It was, um, when does that ever happen? Oh, never. That's amazing. It was amazing. Um, Alan Aitborn, <laughs> yeah. no less, who was like the second most oh. performed playwright after Shakespeare in the UK. Amazing man. Him personally, knew um, Communicating Doors was the show and I was the understudy to the lead and another part. Well, lucky for me, the lead did get sick of <laughs> and oh um, Julia McKenzie was in it, who was a big star then and probably still is. And 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 I got to I got to travel the whole of England. I got to I got paid great money. Um, 
most of the time wow. just sitting there waiting for someone to get sick. But I got the benefit of learning with Alan and he would take rehearsals for the understudies as well. He was very serious about the quality of his plays and I learned an awful lot. And then I did other bits and bobs. I did the bill. I've done all sorts of things, right? And it was oh, wow. good fun. What it, about how, how funny that really somebody who was kind of half-assed about, you know, I might as well just do drama because it's come forward, gets a job, travels the country. Like it, you make it all sound so easy. You know, well, we'll get to the second half of my career. That's been a bloody slog, I can tell you. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's the the, for, the fortune of the young. Really, you just don't care yeah. as much. You know, it means and you don't know what you don't know. You don't. So you just go for it. So you, you just know? blindly go on. I might as well give that a go. Woo-hoo, you throw yourself so in. How long, how long were you acting for? Oh, so it would have been. I still did a bit when I came over here. So and that was when I was 28, oh, okay. 29, sort of 30. So I still. Oh, so you did it for, you know, a good, nearly a decade maybe. Yeah, on and off for yeah, a decade. Right. And one of the things I did is while I was acting, I, I, if you, you know, during the day, it's not a lot to do once you've rehearsed to play. And I wanted to do some volunteering. So I kind of got into some volunteering for charities. Um, because that's always sort of spoken to me as well. I, I enjoy that very much, sort of, you know, seeing if you can make a difference somewhere, which sounds a bit cheesy and corny, but actually you get a lot more it out of it than people think. It doesn't sound cheesy. It's actually yeah, quite selfish because you, you, give, you give and you volunteer, but you feel fabulous, you know, and you get all this positive <laughs> feedback. So I think, you know, it, it serves a purpose for both parties, really, if I'm yeah, totally right. honest. Um, but I really loved it. And I worked for Children in Crisis doing this volunteering, and they, have, they were basically working for children in sort of war-torn areas. So Afghanistan, Kabul at the time was kind of the ex-government forces and the Taliban sort of vying for control of Kabul. And women weren't allowed to work. They weren't. That was awful. Oh, they, they, they weren't allowed to Not work. Not allowed out of the house without a bloke. They without weren't allowed bloke. education. That was Absolute. another thing that was stopped Or to early. see a doctor because all the doctors were men because women couldn't work. So, but a woman couldn't go and see a male doctor because that's not her husband. <laughs> so basically you could get no medical care. You could get no support. You couldn't get a job. And all the men were going off to war to fight in these, these wars. So they were left on their own with their children. And literally starving in the homes and people wouldn't come back and it was awful. So they would actually put these kids out on the street in the hope that a NGO and a government organization like children in crisis would pick up these kids and help them. And so I was part of that. And it was, um, we were looking to raise money for a 1000 child clinic in Kabul, um, to give kids basically access to food, roof, clothes, cuddle, you know, bit of love, bit of yeah. security, um, and to help these women out that were literally didn't know what to do, couldn't feed the kids, couldn't do anything. And you'd sort of go in and go out. But I remember thinking oh, these pictures would come across the desks and they were horrific, so horrific that they couldn't actually even be printed in the British press. And you know what the British press is like. Which it's is like, saying something, yeah. Yeah, right. You can't put a photo in the sun, you know, that you're looking at something pretty gruesome. And it motivated me in a very real way. And I thought, no, we're going to get this money. I was a volunteer, but I would go in with the project manager and I found a friend who from drama school, her grandfather was really wealthy and he'd set up a foundation. So we went in and we came out with the money. I'll never forget. It was with Joseph Lee. How much much did you have to raise? Oh, you know, I cannot remember. It was substantial. It would have probably been about, I think it was something like about 20,000 pounds back then. Okay. Okay. 
which doesn't sound yeah, so like a lot, a but back then it would have been a fair amount. Yeah, and yeah, it was yeah. A, and it's from donations. Yeah, it was a Joseph Lee's Levy Foundation was his name, and he'd set that up, oh. and we got the money. And I think that was a, that was a light bulb moment of wanting of understanding that you can actually create change. You just got to set your mind to it and be kind of you know unwavering in your yeah. In your in your mission, well, if you like. isn't that, that is, is a, a great, great lesson for any of the women that are listening? Because, <laughs> uh, in fact, in a, one of our um, one of the lunches that we did last week, I did the lunches with female founders, and one of the women said, "I am so terrified about ringing the media, but you know what? I'm more stubborn than I am scared." And we all went, "Oh my god, I love it!" And that is so true, isn't it? Like I, I am not right. backing down, even though yeah. I'm terrified. Yeah, yeah, love it. Absolutely. Sorry, go on then. <laughs> no, so that was that was really the, the first kind of foray into doing something not for profit and really and making understanding, a huge difference. making a difference. Yeah, and then yeah. I started doing more started, of that, and then I met. Uh, I was so I was doing both. I was doing my volunteer work. I was doing my and my acting, acting work, and then I met an Aussie guy. And as you do, you as can't you escape do. them in London. I know they're everywhere with their <laughs> long know. hair and their tans and their suave ways. I'm such a cliche. And you fell for fell him. Fell for him. <laughs> and then I thought, well, actually, I'd love to see this place, Australia, that he's been talking about. But I didn't come here with him. I was like, because he was going off to do a ski season. I'm like, well, I'm gonna, you're going to do a ski season. I don't want to do that. I'm bloody cold all the time I'm going to go over to Australia in the winter and have a bit of fun you know because it's right. it's warm over there so a couple of girlfriends and I came over here would have been about 28 and we um we traveled around Australia and I fell in love with the place so I liked the guy fell in love with the place more I think <laughs> and then came over here with him um you know and and that's kind of where the journey started here in Oz. So it would have been around the, by the time I came here, it would have been 31, 32, I think. Yeah, about okay. in my early 30s. Um, and then I had a house in London and I decided to sell the house in London and that actually gave me a bit of a bit of cash. Oh, I love it. You're, you're so boots and all, aren't you? Oh. Like if I'm going to make it, if I'm going to do it, I'm jumping in. Got to so do it. Got sold to do the it. house in London, stuck and in Australia I have now. to say, I have to say, if the older Katie could go back and have a chat with the younger Katie, she'd say, mate, just rent it out and hang on to it. That's going to be worth a lot of money one day. Yes. Well, but anyway, yes. we've all got those stories. So I didn't. Older Katie wasn't around yet. Still impulsive, spontaneous, live in the moment Katie was running the show. So, um, so that I came over here, bought a little house, and then um, we bought this little bar, which we, it was a dive. It was such a dive. It was like a backpack. It was under a backpackers, and it there was one person in there when we went to have a look at it. But Russ's background was all hospitality, and he's like, I know how to do this, and I had the money, and I'm like, why don't we get a little place of our own and create something, you know? And so, so is this the little bug bar you were talking yeah, about on yeah. Burke Street, right? Yeah, little Burke Street. It's now still there, but it's called it's called Bar Humbug now. So it was Bug Bar when oh, we had I it. I think I might have seen it. Yeah, it's still there. Um, and okay, that, well that done. Name, that name comes from a pub that a little pub that we used to go to in Brixton, me and Russ. So, oh my God, I lived in Brixton as well. I do. feel like we, we must have been like that, you and I. We could have well partied together. There's a lot of parties there. Um, I probably yeah, wouldn't, probably the... wouldn't remember you, and you probably wouldn't remember me because I don't think no, you remembered I was always, much. I was, I was always playing pool at the pub we... <laughs> down in Cold Harbour Lane. <laughs> Plenty of drinking cold harbour lane I've had, I can tell you. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, so you've got this bar in Australia. Yes. Russ knows how to run it. Yeah. So what happened next? And I knew how to drink in it, so that was good. So there was a good, good marriage Perfect there. Perfect combo. 
<laughs> and we, we built it up and we made it into this little jazz bar and it became quite popular and we sort of fill up on a Friday and I'd have someone sing live jazz and that's when the moment, the pilot light moment of the food happened. And then someone, one of the guys that actually worked for us said, look, we'd really like to buy this off you and offered us over double what we paid for it, which kind of never happens in hospitality. And we said, yeah, let's do it, move on to something else. So that was what we did. We gave it to him. He still runs it. I don't know if he's still got ownership in it. And then um, – Well, and don't then even I- ask around COVID because who knows no, what's going to happen when we're let out. For anyone that's listening, we're now at the end of September and yes. we've been locked down forever. Ever. 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 Anyway, and moving on. Moving so on. you've so sold that, the bar. And that's it. And there's sort of then then the, the, really the career in the reduction of food waste began. So that's what's happened. So how do you even start, though? What did you do? So you walk away, you've got a little bit of money from the bar, but you've yep. got no business and no, no, no other sorts of income. Bar. We bought a little juice bar, but then didn't oh, really, okay. found we didn't really enjoy that. We liked wine bars far more than we liked oh, juice good. bars. <laughs> Way too healthy. Way too healthy. Um, I guess I do, you know, and people come in and they're like, oh, I'd like some bit of organic this and a bit of organic that. I'm thinking, I just want a nice glass of Chardonnay, thanks. And you surely don't want me to yeah, throw yeah, a, a shot of whiskey in it. Yeah, some vodka in that Some for vodka. You. Yeah. So, um, so we, we sold that and literally that's when I met Ian and Simone. Someone said, look, right. you should, they're, they're looking for someone that maybe could bring it all together. And I had that food waste moment and I wasn't doing anything moment. And I met them and liked them moment. And all those moments came together and I said, yeah, I'll but, do this. But I still don't understand how you can take that idea and start turning it into a, into a thing, into a business. I don't know. So how, how did you start? <laughs> What was well, the first thing you did? Well, Second Bite was the first thing. So Second Bite was a food rescue organisation charitable. So right in my sweet right. spot of loving to do that. It was about, yep. you know, they were going and getting this food at the Paran market. I came on as an employee. We raised a bit of cash so I could have a wage. It wasn't much wage to speak of, um, but it was enough. And I start, I worked hard, really, really right. hard. I will say that. What did you do? Go to all the different markets and do the same thing? Yep. Say, can I have the scraps at the end? Yep, recruited the whole team of volunteers, got them in Second Bite T-shirts, got a branding story up, got a lot of – had Amazing. no problem asking people for things. So I would ask people for, you know, pro bono marketing programs pro bono PR, pro bono everything pretty much. You know, can you do these? Brilliant. We'll, we'll put your logo on the T-shirts if you print all the T-shirts for free. So basically got an awful lot for very little. Um, well done. And, um, and that's kind of where the genesis of Second Bite was. And we um, – you know, we, we started to expand and then we looked at other states. We were taking a lot of food. We were looking at other places to get food. So from businesses, from um, local greengrocers, not just the markets, we started to expand our supplier base. And then really, for me, the passion there was around research and development and trying to understand the underlying issue of food insecurity in Australia and how we could bring sort of innovative solutions to that market failure, if you like. And that's that's kind of where that passion really took me. And we were the first food rescue organisation to have an R&D department that was focusing solely on the solution based rather than just moving food, endless, endless tons of food to more people. It's like, surely we should be trying to teach people to fish here, not just throwing them a fish. So I totally get, and I think most people do the idea of food waste going to homeless people or to people, you know, to food banks, those kind of things. How do you make the leap and how does it work when you're selling to other businesses? I find that bit. So how did that yeah. even happen? Yeah, well, 
going out and talking to farmers um, at Second Bite and places, um, different business owners and ask them to donate food, I was really confronted and shocked by how hard they were doing it. Like it's not easy. They're not making much yeah. money. And farmers, I started to kind of dig underneath that. And, you know, the Australian Bureau of Statistics in 2011 stated that farmers were two and a half times more likely to commit suicide than any other profession yeah. in Australia. And I'm like, there's something not right here. I can't be asking these people. To, they need money for this food. They need to survive right. themselves. This, this food system is broken. And there was more and more evidence coming to the fore from America and Canada, in particular Canada, that was citing that if food rescue was the answer to food insecurity, we would be seeing some impact because there's more food rescue than there's ever been in the history of mankind, but food insecurity is going up, which is my point. Can you, can you just tell me what the definition of those two things is? So food rescue is the act of taking food that might otherwise go to waste to try and solve a waste problem by giving it to people who don't have money to buy fresh food. Right? Okay. But there is an awful lot of... Um, studies and research that's been done over the course of the last six years, not new, that show that one is not a solution for the other. Because food right. insecurity is incredibly complex. It's not just, oh, I haven't got access to food. Yeah. It's an educational piece. It could be a piece um, around um, you know, generational unemployment. It's about homelessness. It's about mental health. It's about so many different things. It is not just that People can't get food. They can get food, but they stay food insecure and they stay in the situation. So it's really more about trying to find programs that solve the problem rather than it is that it is that old sort of adage. So is it things like, I don't know what to do with the food when I get it. So it's easier to buy a pizza than it or a burger than it is to be given some mints and, and, you know, right. So it's that kind of thing as well. hundred percent. If you've, if you've grown up in a family and who've generations have, no cooking skills at all. You don't yeah. just miraculously get born and go, oh, I know how to cook broccoli and make that taste nice and put it with some and salmon. And if you're homeless, you can't be watching MasterChef no. and kind of going, oh, that's how they do it. No, you're right. not in that environment where everyone's sitting around as a family space. watching yeah, MasterChef right. thinking, oh, that's a really interesting show. You're probably thinking about, <laughs> you know, where, yes, where, you, where you're going to sleep that night. So, yeah, you know, you're couch surfing or, or something similar. So it's, you know, it's... That's it, a really interesting insight. I don't think most people know about that. That, yeah. you know, food, because we think we'll just take these this excess food and we'll give it to homeless people and, and that solves the problem. And it doesn't. But, of course, it doesn't at all. It doesn't. Right, so what, no. what was the solution or, or how, how did you move into B2B and what kind of businesses want food that's, you know, on its yeah. best, you know, yeah. on well, its last few days of best before? Well, you're going to be shocked because it's not actually that. Most of it's got heaps of date on it and it's just been rejected oh. because it's, you know, too small, too large when it comes to fruit and veg. 33% of food waste is not, it doesn't ever leave the farm. Never even leaves the farm. So this is the, oh this is the, so I wanted, right. I, I felt the second bite was in a position where I could kind of hand over the keys, so to speak, and move on to really try and understand why the food system is so broken. I knew that one wasn't going to fix the other. I know it's important that we provide fresh food for people that can't necessarily access it, but I think there's a better way to do it. I think yep. the food rescue organizations, and I did it as well as CEO of second bite, I would take food that I didn't necessarily know that I could move on because I was right. too scared that if I said no to the donor, they would never offer it to me again. Um, right. So there's waste that happens at food rescue. So it's an imperfect system. 
I ate, so I knew yep. there had to be a better way, a more efficient way that would prevent more food waste, help get more food, the right type of food to food rescue, but also help give an income back to people that make or grow it. And that's right. really where the genesis of Yumi and what it's become today happened. Um, yep. So working, having that experience of understanding food donation, I knew that there was a lot of food out there, um, but I don't think I ever understood how much. So, to you know, the it's 4.1 million tons of commercial and industrial food waste. So that does, that's before it gets to your Is that home. per year? Yeah, in Australia. Oh, my God, that's, that's football fields worth. Well, actually, we quantified it. You know this big semi-trailers, the massive trucks yes. you see? It's 521 yes. of those every day. No. Yeah, 521 every day. 500 trucks a day of wasted food. Yeah, yeah, just in commercial and industrial. So that's not coming out hospitality, not supermarkets, not homes. That's just happening with the big food companies. Oh, now I'm starting to feel a bit sick. That's disgusting. It's pretty confronting. It's pretty confronting. very confronting. So go on. So, so tell me how you solved the problem. Well, I just I love this and then I want to tell the whole world. I have not <laughs> solved the problem. There is a long way to go, I can tell you. But, you know, we're getting there. And right. it's, it, it, it was about, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my career. And there are many times, to be honest, that I nearly thought, I, just, I really don't know. I don't know if I can keep going because... You know, I've probably aged 20 years in the last 10. You know, I haven't seen my kids as much as I'd like to have seen them, but I've, pl- I've ploughed on and, you know, knocking on doors and trying to get the big food companies to believe in what we were doing and sort of open the kimono, if you like, and let us have a look at the food waste. That's a no-no. Yeah. They don't do that. They're not telling the food right. rescue how much there is. They're not telling people. There's a lot of food that isn't necessarily suitable for donation because it might be ingredients um, or yeah. it might be just on such an enormous scale, your mind blows. You know, you're like, wow, what would you do with that? You know, what do you do with 30 tonne of cream cheese? What do you do with, you know, 378 pallets of chips. What are you going to do with, and all of this is real examples. What are you going to do with 550,000 pouches of of tuna in unlabeled uh, plastic pouches because they were were intended to go into like those salad packs, but then the salad packs didn't sell as well. So the supply was stranded with those in Tasmania. It's just huge quantities, huge, huge, huge quantities. Yes, massive. So, so, so why would another, so you have to explain a bit more. I still don't understand. Why would another business want that food? What are they going to use it for? So we sell the the kind of buyers we have on the platform are airport airport lounges. It is really good quality. So that tuna had like two years of life on it. It was quality tuna to give you an example. The one that you would, if you went to the supermarket, you know, like I'm going to buy the best branded can of tuna on that shelf. It was that that brand. Yep. Right. It was that brand, the best you can buy. And, but it couldn't be sold legally in individual sachets because they were unlabeled. That doesn't meet Australian labeling standards. So these are the examples, right? Of the red tape that means that all this food goes to waste. Correct. You've also now got a supplier in Tasmania who's who's been told to make all of this for these salad packs for one of the major supermarkets. They've cancelled the order because the pack didn't go as well. Their research and development, it's not the poor tuna packaging guy's fault, but he's left yeah. it holding the problem. And he's now totally out of pocket and he can't sell them anywhere because they don't meet labeling standards so he can't afford to donate them he's a family yeah. business about to go out of business because he's got five, five hundred and fifty thousand sachets of tuna shit 27 and a half ton in 50 gram packages what's he gonna do 
he's got to eat, bury it and move on or give it to local food rescue in Tasmania. There's only so much people can take. So he actually needs the return or is at risk of going out of business. So he put it on yeah. the Emmy platform and the places that bought it were salad manufacturers, sandwich manufacturers, Harris Farm came to the mix, which is like this sort of independent supermarket. They put them in boxes of 10, put a label on it and told the story and people flocked to it. And it was amazing. Wow. We put it out on Facebook and people got really creative of what you could do and where we could sell. And we sold the whole lot, the whole lot. He got a return. It wasn't what they wanted. Uh, it wasn't no, what but it was it wasn't, worth, it, but it wasn't, it wasn't wasted. all out of pocket. No, yeah. it wasn't. And oh, it gave them wow. something back. So that's, that's the kind of example. And so the product is really great quality. You have to have safe products because we've got to protect everybody. So airport lounges, um, big industrial caterers, smaller pub groups, all sorts of places. Um, we've had right. lobster tail on there. We've had some of the most incredible ingredients that you would never think of. But they're normally like the lobster tail is this sort of line core premium lobster tail meat um, that had been um, a product that had been packaged and frozen for a major gourmet burger chain. You can kind of read between the lines. And they tried this. They tried this sort of surf and turf burger where you put the burger and you put the lobster. But that's quite an expensive product. And in that particular price point, it didn't sell. So they were left with like 700 kilos on ice of this lobster tail. That's worth a lot of money. But they're not lobster tail sellers. They And it's all all over the place. They are – they're burger makers, Yes. And they've got franchises all around the country. So what are they going to do? So that's the sort of stuff that we move because it's like it's got nowhere else to go. And we then move it through to other markets. And that went to a lot of kind of, bless you. <laughs> bless you. Excuse me. Sorry. That's all right. So that kind of went to um, that went to a lot of high-end restaurants and hotels who do kind of, you know, lobster risottos or pastas and various things. So that's just a mix. So, so the high-end restaurants, so you've got a whole lot of suppliers now that do know they can come to you, but it's more like a catch of the day kind of. We, you can't go ahead and order lobster tails. You have to, we'll tell you what we've got in stock and you yeah. can yeah. have. And how, and how long have you been running that as a sort of, so it's a platform where people can go on and look for their ingredients, is that? Exactly right, yeah. And it's been, we started that really in 2000, we started the pilot for that in 2016. Um, the right. sort of mid-2016, we realised, we did three months, we thought there's something here, there's a lot of food here, there's a lot of people that seem to be interested in buying it. We've got to put all the safety and the terms and conditions, but I think we were onto something. And that's when we went and raised some capital. Um, and I did a capital raise, which, of course, anyone that's done a capital raise will know is exhausting and I was going to say yeah I mean I know the more I the more I'm talking to female founders the more I'm finding it you know how little money goes to women who are trying to do amazing initiatives but you managed to get some yeah, yeah, we did. We got two point six million actually from wow. In, 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 oh, congratulations! Thank you, Impact Investors. Um, so a lot of the family foundations, some of whom I worked with before, some of whom I hadn't, but not coming out of their charitable donations. I really wanted, I really wanted Yumi to be different from Second Bite or a charitable structure. And the fact that I didn't want to go hand out stretched all the time. I wanted to create a a social enterprise that was sustainable financially commercially viable absolutely because i i think that's the way we need to go in the future you know there is there is a 
makes I, sense. I, I spent 70% of my time at Second by asking for money. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to spend 100% of my time working on the problem and solving yes. the problem of food waste and trying to think of innovative solutions. And getting, Oh, Katie, I'm getting goosebumps. Like ah. You're absolutely amazing. I'm loving oh. what you're doing. And slightly unhinged as well. I think you have to be slightly unhinged to do these That's kind of things. That's important, though. It is. It's an important ingredient in the whole thing. And like having a drink, which also yes. makes it very important. Yes, all but those wow, things. wow, wow, amazing. So um, tell me about on the journey, and just because this is out there for women who are in business as well, and we mm. all know that yeah, when we make a – I'm going to be rude – when we make a fuck up or something happens that – you know, that it seems a disaster at the time. Yeah. You can look back on it and go, well, actually, that actually taught, made me do this differently or it made me do that differently. Yeah. Have you had any moments like that, what I call pivotal moments? <laughs> oh, my God, daily. Yes, Can you tell time. me like a couple of doozies, though, that, that really, you know, might help other women as well? Yeah, I think we, we, we raised that money and then we sort of had this, plan that we'd built so based on these assumptions and this is the first one we based an entire financial model on three months of assumptions it was ratified by the guy who led the capital raise and off we went to to, to get the money but the reality was you know what looked great in theory on paper just didn't turn out to be what happened in real life you know so we did what we said we were going to do which is and everything was true and correct in the assumptions um but we started putting the plan in action and then we realised the plan didn't work. So we had to rip the plan up. So there we are with this oh, money. We've, we've hired these people that we said in the plan we were going to hire because if we hire these people, that means we've got more people to knock on more doors and that's going to transfer into more food on a platform, which we're still building. We, you know, that was still, wasn't even built at the time. It was just a, a, an Excel spreadsheet. And then we'll have people that can go out and help us open doors to sell the product. Um, but what we did was we hired from the food industry, but we realized that then the people that were coming in from the food industry, because none of us were food industry experts, actually brought all of the challenges and the broken system in with them and tried to redefine, tried to remold us from a mission-based social enterprise to a a really commercial rebate structure, all the stuff that suppliers do, all the stuff we we, we didn't want. That you didn't want to want. We wanted to be transparent. We wanted to solve the problem. We didn't want to pretend something was surplus so we could sell it. We wanted it to be genuine surplus so there was real impact. You know, we wanted all those things and they thought we were nuts. Like, why would you turn down a $30,000 deal on salmon? I'm like, because it's not surplus salmon. (laughs) It's just right. salmon. We're not. I don't. I don't, didn't give up oh, my career. Okay. Yeah. I didn't give up my career to create a, a marketplace just for food. And there's plenty of them around. <laughs> I did it to solve a problem. I'm not the right person for that job. You know. Right. Um, yeah. So it didn't work. So, they, the people didn't come. You know. We thought, oh well, if we build it, they will come, and they didn't. They didn't come. And all of a sudden, I had like a team of about twelve, which was what the plan had said, and. We had a completely stagnant and very unsustainable bottom line. What do you do when that has been your plan? You've got all these experts from the food industry that know what they're talking about sitting there going, you're doing it the wrong way. You know, we know better than you. We know what works. And you're going, no, but I'm completely disrupting the industry. Like. In terms of your confidence, that must have been shaken. Like you must have just gone, shit, are they right? Like, oh, my God, maybe I've made completely the wrong decision. Absolutely. And I also had, you know, at the time a male board member who was being also questioning of it. Um, oh, God. So it was coming at me from up uh, – it was coming All at angles. me from every, everywhere. But I – 
quite stressful, I imagine. Very stressful, <laughs> very stressful. And also, you know, really, it really started to um, halt the business because if you, if you rock a founder's confidence and sort of that's where the ideas are coming from, it's like an idea generating machine and we'll generate some great ones and we'll do some doozies. But the reality is that that's kind of where you, you've got to have you and your team really united and you create the magic together, yeah? So you start yeah. to fragment that. So in the end, I had to make the call to get rid of the team members that I felt were sort of bringing this toxic kind of environment back into uni, yeah. getting us off of mission. Um, but then the board started to get really nervous, not all of them, but there was, weren't that many on the board. They were like, but now we've burnt this cash and we've kind of, it hasn't worked out. And they were very conservative. So one of the things I found is that with impact investors who were great and we couldn't have done it without them, it's, they are the gatekeepers often, these family trusts and the people that run them who aren't the family are the gatekeepers of yeah. the money. And their remit right. is to make that money grow. So to keep that money safe, not to take risks. Yep. Don't take risks with a corpus of a family foundation. <laughs> but then they want to dip the toe in impact investing, which is actually very high risk because they're startups. Right. Startups are notoriously yes. high risk. You know, what's it, 99.8% of them fail or something in the first year? Yeah, 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 something, something appalling crazy. like that. So it's like, you know, if, you, if you're going to have a really conservative mindset, you're going to invest in something that is incredibly high risk. You've actually got... Yeah completely opposing methodologies of how to run a business. So you've got startup founders who are like, ballsy, we've got to go for it. We've got to, we've got to try this. We've got to fail fast. With a big appetite for risk. Yeah, absolutely. Let's give it a go. You've got to fail fast so you can pivot and try something else. Whereas they have a very, very low appetite for risk. And <laughs> risk. they want to protect and proven everything. basically it didn't work. I mean, that's no. the thing that, would have shaken them, like yeah. trying to say to them, no, no, believe me, we're just going to go in this yeah. direction. And they go, well, we believed you before and yeah, you were wrong. That's exactly what they said. You know? And I'm like, but oh. this is startup. I'm like, this is what happens in a startup. You have to do this. This is part of the process. Have a look at any successful startup and you'll see this thing they call the trough of sorrow. And you're like, oh, yeah, we're on it, we're on it, we're on it. Oh, crap. No, we're not. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah. This could be it. Oh, shit, that's not it either. Oh, my God. That's actually what happens. That's the life, yeah. life of every startup, right? So... Um, or the very vast majority. Um, in the end, we had to have a board change and we had to really get back to a mindset. So that was probably one of the most challenging times of my career. And it really, I, I really nearly walked away because I thought I can't, my health is suffering, my, my, just, my mental health is suffering. This is not where I want to be. And then I thought, I sort of took, took a week, reflected, got back to what I believe in, looked at what I've achieved in the past, backed myself in, had the support of fabulous board member, my angel investor, who's never, ever wavered in his belief and still says that you oh, is the most great. exciting and fantastic thing. So there was a big cheerleader there um, and really the person I probably respect the most on the board because he is such a, a game changer and he has got that risk appetite. It's a good fit. It's a good fit. Yes. Yeah. Um, right. And so together we kind of rebuilt it and we, we worked together and he backed me and any idea I brought him, he'd go, go for it, go for it. Let's oh my God. I it. love him. I love him too. Brilliant. I was like, go, he's yeah. like, go for it. So we went for it and then it would work. And then my confidence started to build. And then I started to feel more, able to take more risks and he would back me right. and say, take the risk. Let's do it. I've got your back. 
off we go. And it started to work. It started to work. Um, So, you know, having, having that, sort of person cheering you on the person that does have your back that says I understand it's important to have the people at the table that understand the process of startup um, and have a similar risk appetite you don't want to all be completely mad you know and jumping no. off cliffs without a parachute you got to have some <laughs> you tension need that there balance of, yeah, yeah you need that but you, if you've got a dead weight that's not letting you go anywhere then you're actually just going to burn through the runway and go nowhere because you're trying nothing because everyone's too frightened. And the whole point is if nothing's been done, something like Yumi hadn't been done before, there's no blueprint to follow. You've got to make the mistakes. You've got to find what works and what doesn't. And finally, now in 2020, the year that no one will forget, you know, (laughs) I would say. I was going to say, how has COVID affected you? Like, blimey. So that would be another one. So the, the first one, you know, the, all the, the knocks you talked about. And then the next knock was last year, which is when we'd actually built, picked the business up off its knees and really found um, a formula that was working and went out yep. for more money. Because by then, you've, when you've custom-built technology from the ground up, because none of it's bought off the shelf. It costs an it, absolute bloody, bloody fortune. Absolute bloody millions. Yeah, it costs a fortune. Yeah. So the money's dwindling so we went and did another capital raise and we got two big fish on the line and then just at the 11th hour when we had like signed everything it was just best and final offers were in whole thing was going to happen they got a freeze on all mergers and acquisitions from their parent company in france i was like i was i was waiting for the money to drop so i i'm like this is great i'm actually going to take my family because this has been the year from help i'm taking them i'm gonna go on we just went up to Queen, went up to Palm Cove, and we're just going to spend a week swimming with my kids. I got up there on the on the Wednesday. Um, the money was due to drop on the Friday, and the only thing I was sad about was I wasn't going to be there with my team. But they all understood, yeah. and we'd had a big celebration before I left anyway because it was good as done. We were told the money will land yeah. in the account at five o'clock on the Friday. Friday. So there I was, ready so for celebrations in Palm Cove. Woohoo! And then I got a call at eleven o'clock that day to say there's been a freeze. We are devastated we can't believe this has happened it's been taken out of our power and that was the end of my holiday so oh my god Katie, what did you do had to come up with a plan very quickly good. of how You're we could a very good entrepreneur <laughs> had to come up with something because we had very little money left in the bank at this point right. um and i put a proposal to them and said what about a corporate partnership what about a corporate sponsorship partnership because you do that it's not a merger it's not an acquisition they're like this could be a really elegant solution so we literally pulled it out of our backsides me and the team worked round the clock for about two days straight um barely slept and then we got this proposal up they got it over the line we got the tick of approval that meant we had enough money on a monthly basis to cover the burn um and and, and be able to keep everybody so we sort of we, we we recovered and then we went back to the existing investor base and said look we've done this recovery we need an extra 300 grand just to top us up so that we can do this this and this and we can yep. keep moving the plan forward so one of those moments that you say, well, when did you learn something? That was one of the key moments because actually they didn't invest the larger chunk of cash, but that meant that constraint meant we had to really test all of our theories. We had to be incredibly frugal, really resourceful, almost back to not-for-profit days where you're kind of, you're just getting stuff. So you're really thinking about what you're putting your energy into. 
and it started to work. We actually had break. We actually got to break even, which like just doesn't happen in a startup tech startup. But yeah. we, we were covering. We, we were washing our faces, only just mind you. But that never happens in most tech startups. Yeah. Are still not even break even, and and then. We were, we could see the plan ahead and we're like, right, well, now we're actually in a position to do, to do something. Cause I think the formula is in place and we were yep. going to go out at the beginning of this year and COVID happened. So then just <laughs> every time we pull ourselves and go, done it. And we're like, nah, here you go. Have something now. Stop celebrating until yeah. after the, no the celebration. So no. no celebrations allowed now until afterwards. <laughs> so what did you do when COVID hit? Well, and, and I mean, you know, what it's doing to hospitality, I guess, oh yeah. and what it's doing across the board. Yeah, shocking. I mean, we lost 40% of our revenue overnight when they shut hospitality down because of the events. You know, we work with the major industrial caterers. They all have the events. We've got product that goes into all the major sporting stadiums buy from us. Right, right. Um, so that just died and we're like, right, okay, Um so I and yet more it. need than ever, more I guess, in some ever. ways. More because food you know stranded that than ever before because all of these right. food service um, quantities. ahead. And they're all, they're all had to be stopped in their tracks. You've got distributors holding phenomenal amounts of food. And you don't know where for it to go because all food service is gone. So what do you do because your buyers are also locked down? Yeah. Yep, so we convened a COVID SWAT team, I did, with my team. <laughs> we met. Yep. We literally met on that Monday. It all happened. And we just had a new starter. So we had this head of growth and um, head growth and impact started. And I'm like, welcome to your first day. This is not going to look like any first day you've ever seen. And we had this SWAT team and we quickly created a product, like a, a matrix, an evaluation matrix to work out what products would give us longevity, most impact, financial return, and all of the, and be on mission, all of these things. And then we ran all of the ideas that we had in the blue sky pipeline and ones that we didn't even have. And we just threw them all on the table. And we went, everything's on the table, everything. Yeah. Um, let's run it all through this. Let's be really rigorous, but let's come up with a plan within the next 72 hours of what we're going to pursue, who we're going to give it yep. to in the team to head up. And then we meet every day and talk about progress. And that's literally what we did. And we brought forward um, listing alcohol on the platform, which is something we've had in our sites. There's so much alcohol goes to waste, which I know will shock you, but beer it is crushed by me. the palate load and so is wine. Um, oh, it, my goodness. There's all the same reasons. You know, some of the big uh, major chains demand six months of shelf life on beer. If it gets there and it's got five, they reject it. It gets crushed because it's too oh. much hassle to reroute it all. So, so – we brought that onto the platform and there was a lot of that sitting in limbo. Now we, that was that was very good decision because of what's happened over COVID as well, uh, I imagine. Yes, it was. <laughs> um, and then uh, distributor platforms. So Unilever approached us and said, because we've been working to move their surplus food for, for a while, and they said, look, we love your technology. Can you spin something like that up in a, quickly for our distributors? So just the distributor product. And we said, yep, we can do that. So within nine days, we'd copied the platform code base, spun it up for distributors and had that live for Unilever. So there was all of these things that we did. And then the New Zealand government, Ministry for um, Primary Industries, said, and I'd been over there in February just before all of the shit hit the fan, and they said, look, we want to come up with something that can help in these times. We're like, well, Yumi's here. And someone had seen me speak in February and she said, I want to put in for this grant 
do you give it your blessing? I'm like, absolutely. We got the grant to do the feasibility. So we've just finished a 10 week feasibility. So all of these things in, in New Zealand, so all of these things that were in a pipeline for 2021, 2022, they all were like bought forward right now. And we've yeah. recovered. We've recovered. We are, we wow. are, I would say we're, we're 10% up, uh, under of what had been pre COVID quite an ambitious target. So we've still grown like that. We're about to close our biggest quarter to date. Yeah. Wow, Katie, you are, you're, uh, I don't even know how to describe you other than you're amazing. What you're doing is incredible. And I love your founder journey because you're being so honest and it's so friggin' true. Okay. So, um, unfortunately, we are just about at the end. Um, so I'm just going to ask you a couple of sort of silly, lighthearted questions. So one is when you have, a big business like this that's going up and down and whatever, and you've got a family, uh, how are you juggling it these days? Do you actually kind of go, these are my work hours and this is my weekend and my evenings and they're with the kids, or does it all bleed into each other? Homeschooling, everything bleeds into each other. <laughs> what What are you talking about? It's been, there is no separation. It's all crazy right. right now, you know, but, I mean, in normal life. It's kind of great in some ways as well. <laughs> look, it, it's been madness. I have um, – I have a greater respect for my uh, for the teachers of my kids uh, than I've ever had. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you that. Um, it's hard work. But what I've learned to do better, I think, through this now is to actually just carve out bits of time. I don't have hours. I've never had hours. It's not the way I, I kind of roll. But I, I, I carve out time. It's like, all right, this is going to be half a day right now where the phone goes off. I've got no meetings. That's going off. And I'm going to be with them in their moment. And we're going to go to the park. We'll go to the skate park. We'll do this. We'll do that stuff for them. So I think it's important mentally because it's a lot of strain on us mentally. It is as well. Yeah. You want to take some time out. So actually to, 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 when you've got to operate both sides of your, both of that, the mother side and the, the business side at the same time, that's incredibly stressful. And you end up kind of not doing both particularly well. You're just sort of muddling through. So I find that dividing that up is really helpful. And I've been fortunate that I have been able to pop into the office sort of at least once a week and get that because I go in and meet with Pitsy, that's the angel investor and, you know, at safe distance. And we have to, we, we you know, we, we have these big meetings, which is very difficult to have on a Zoom. You know, yeah. it's got a huge building and it's just him one end of a bit of a thing and me the other. And we, 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 we discuss and things and work we, work, we work stuff out. That's been a lifesaver as well. So that's kind of how I've done it. I've kind of divided work and yeah. home. As best I can. It's, it's been it's been an eye opener for a lot of people in terms of mm. not only how difficult it is to do with the kids, but also how great it is to be able to have that time with them yeah. when you are able to just focus. I know it's a, when you're not able to focus, it's a bloody challenge. Yes, but um, but you know the flip side. Okay, now is there a quirky fact about you that nobody really knows that you'd be prepared to share? Oh God. <laughs> you might like to ask: Is there any kind of like normal facts about me that I'd like to share? <laughs> quirky fact. I've had people on that were the first big red chair for Graham Norton that won, you know, um, Sale of the Century when they were younger. One oh, person, I've, had, one I've woman. had dinner with Robbie Williams. No. Dead, dead serious. Oh, my God, really? When? When he was in Take I, That? I, yes, I dated <gasps> his music producer, a guy called Jonathan Wales, and he produced the music on tour for them, and I was dating oh him, goodness. introduced by my cousin that I mentioned earlier. And he said, you want to come to this concert? 
let's take that concert. And I'm like, hell yeah. So I, of course, was yeah. backstage. So it's kind of technically having dinner, but not just me and Rob's. And oh, right. So, but then I, he said, I'll, I'll do your tour of the stage. Well, and this was, this is when Tape Back were at their absolute prime. Ma- massive. Massive. So I walked between this, the stage and, the where all of the crowds were and I have never oh, yes, that heard, security area. Never heard such abuse in my life from every single um. woman who clearly thought that I was one of the girlfriends because <laughs> I looked a little bit different than I do these days after children and all these businesses. <laughs> and there I am and they're like, you know, anyway, I won't repeat it. But I was like, Oh my god. Oh my god, god that gives you an terrifying. insight into Terrifying. Into what it would be like to be a girlfriend of a pop star. Oh, terrifying. But then I went back right. and he said, do you want to have dinner with the boys? And like, before they go on, I'm like, yeah. So I sat there with the whole to take that and oh. had my dinner. There we go. Uh, That's a fun fact well, that no one would know about me. Well, that is amazing. That Wow, what a great one. I, I, had, um, I got married in Dublin, but I had my hen's night in London and we hired or my bestie hired Jane Mansfield's um, 1956 Chevy convertible in powder pink. Wow. And we went around London and we pumped out Robbie Williams songs and <laughs> sang them at the top of our voices through Soho <laughs> at five o'clock on a Friday night. I'll never forget it. Oh and we saw God. Ringo Starr and my friend, because we were quite pissed at that stage, my friend went, oh, my God, that's Ringo Starr. And he'd been waving at us and he just put his head down and scurried into the nearest oh, building thinking, oh, you did. know, these women have outed me now. But, um, yeah, I've forgotten about that story either. There you go. Okay, and last but not least, are you somebody who uses their phone for business? And if so, what are your favourite apps? Yeah, I've I've got Slack. The platform comes through on Slack. I would look at Slack more than I probably do anything else because it's it's live. It feeds onto my phone so I can see deals that are happening, things that are getting rejected negotiations that are happening it's just constant so that I would use um I'm not a mad social media fan I check Facebook only because my family are overseas but I if you looked at it I don't post on it very much um and what would be the other thing that I constantly look at my bank account to make sure I've got enough money to pay my bills <laughs> look at that quite a bit the old app the old ANZ and, and the, you're not uh, a, you do play bank. games on it or not really no, no, I'm not a massive oh. game player on it. I think because no, I spend I, my I, life I trying to, to get my kids off of it because <laughs> they're obsessed I, with yeah. Roblox and things. So since they've come, I probably would have done more before them, but now I don't. No, not really. I, I reckon of the women I ask, only about 20% are into it. I'm ashamed to say I am completely addicted to Candy Crush and Words with Friends. And I, so when I meet someone who says, oh, yeah, I do this, I'm like, thank God there's two of us. Oh, but, no, you know, there's not great. very many. <laughs> you, 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 I think it's whatever, you know, it's like you've got to have the mind thing that helps you zone out sometimes like people expect me to be reading something highly intelligent I'm not reading anything highly intelligent <laughs> but you know it'll be Leanne Moriarty or some really light kind of chick book that I'm I reading know, I love those books. because I just it just takes me away I don't have to think you know that's, that's it. right and it's better than watching reality television that's for sure that's for um, sure Katie, you are amazing. I am Aww. so glad we had this interview. Yeah, can I've you just tell it. everyone? I've really enjoyed yeah, it. You, oh, good. Can you tell everyone how they can um, find out more about you, me, or get in contact with you? 
Absolutely. Um, you, LinkedIn, there you go. That's an app I do use a lot of. If you want to get hold of me, I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> and it's LinkedIn. KG with a Y, just in case yes. anybody doesn't KG know. So KG Barfield. And then if you want to check out what Yumi's all about and what food's on there, if you're a business that has excess food that you want to sell or you're a business that, you know, wants to look at the extraordinary array of product that's available, which will blow your mind. Um, I think it's about $10 million worth of product on there at the moment. It's just mind-blowing. Then you go to Yumi Food. So it's Y-U-M for Mother E, yumifood.com.au. Check us out. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'sthebos.com.au. She's the Boss.